And we're saying hello uh, from Get Ready to Rock to um, one of the voices of rock and uh, the front man of House of Lords. Hello to James Christian. Hello, James. Hello, David. How are you? Oh, nice. Nice talking to you. And uh, about time we caught up with you. Um, and I have to start off saying, of course, um, I'm sure most of the interviews you're giving at the moment, um, people are asking about your health. Can you give us an update on that? Um getting better by the day, uh, mentally, physically, in every way uh, possible, things are getting better. Uh, it did a little number on my head for a while, and uh, you got to get past that point, and so I'm at a, at a different place right now, and just ready to get back to work. Well, when did all this happen? Was this happening during the recording of the album, or before then, or after? Well, actually, it happened uh, right in the middle uh-huh. that I found out um, of what was going on, and uh, nothing could be done. I, mean, I didn't want to do anything uh, right away because I really needed to think about it, and not only that, I really wanted to finish this record because I didn't know what the future held for me. So it, it was really important. I think a lot of, uh, I put a lot of importance on the fact that I recorded this record and did my vocals at a time in my life where, you know, you just didn't know what the next day brought you. So um, it was it was emotional for me, as, you know, in many, many ways, very emotional. But um, I, I've gone through all these surgeries that I can possibly go through and just hope for the best at this point, you know. Because it, it must have come as a, I mean, did it come as a complete out-of-the-blue shock? I mean, you had no pre um, condition or any indication, James, that you had any condition like this? Well, it I really did come out of the blue. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, um, I, I, I had checkups every year, and um, things always seemed to be okay. I mean, the doctors never said anything was really drastically wrong, but then one day I had this major fever and flu-like symptoms that was just really... I mean, sitting at the studio... And, and within seconds, I was in my bed shivering. So when I went to the doctors, they they said, well, it's not, this is not common for a guy, you know, your age to have any kind of infection like this. Uh, it was a urinary tract infection. And that led to the next uh, stage, which was to do biopsy. And it just went, <laughs> went all downhill from there, you know. It was one bad news after the other for for a while there. Yes. And until I made the decision to to do this radical surgery that um, that they uh, they the guy who actually invented it is in Detroit, Michigan, and I flew there. I actually just you know got on a plane with Robin. We went there and they did the surgery, and it was hellish, and uh, it was a long recovery time. Yes, I should say to listeners, it's it's prostate cancer, isn't it? The condition. Yes. And uh, I mean, it's one of those things that really it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a dreadful thing, really, that sort of comes up on people just unawares, really. But you, you, you're probably now much more knowledgeable, aren't you, James, about this condition? And, uh, you know, you've, you've obviously sought real experts for, um, you know, sorting it all out. I did. I, uh, I did. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we we flew to Detroit, Michigan, because the pioneer of this type of surgery, which is robotic, was the uh, person who actually did my surgery. And I felt like I was in good hands. And look, you know, nothing is 100% guarantee. I understand that. 
but at least you know I've gotten you know I've, I've gotten it taken care of. So at this point, you know, it's just a matter of getting on with the, everything that you do, you know, and and trying to trying to appreciate things a little bit more. When was the surgery? How long ago are we talking about? June twentieth. All right. So you've had the summer and you, you've been sort of recuperating for the last few months. Yes, I, I, I've actually only just started getting better. I, uh, I did two shows a month ago to test the waters because I had a tour set up in October and I just was never going to be ready for that. So I tested the waters in November by doing these two shows in my hometown. And it wasn't bad. I mean, you know, the first show was tough. The second one was maybe 40% better. So, you know, I figure that the more I do it, the better uh, things will get for me. And really, the fact you're talking to me now and, and giving interviews is a sign, isn't it, that you want to uh, start getting out there and getting back to normal, really? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, if it wasn't for my music, and, it, and it, it, it does, it, I don't mean it to sound cliche, but it, it's what I live and breathe. You know, it really is a part of my life. My family, obviously, is my 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 lifeblood is what I live for but you know as far as keeping me occupied and keeping my soul alive you know the music really does it for me so uh, it's something I need to get back to doing yes now obviously you've had to put plans on hold you mentioned there James that you were in fact the band were coming to Europe in October we were looking forward to seeing you in uh, in fact it was Sheffield wasn't it the corporation and that's when I heard the dates had been cancelled. But um, it must be really frustrating, um, although actually health is number one, as you say, and your family is number one. But frustrating nevertheless that you release a, an excellent album and you want to get out promoting it. And of course, it's in limbo, isn't it then, really? Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't plan it that way, but um, I'm, I'm trying to make up for lost time now by getting out there. And doing, you know, doing interviews such as this one that we're we're doing right now, um, because we are going back out on tour, and we do have a strong record, and we want people to hear about it, you know. So uh, unfortunately, I wasn't able to to reschedule the UK. It was just a matter of um, scheduling. I, I I pretty much got everything else moved. But the dates in the UK just didn't fit into where where we needed them to. Well, you're talking now about next February, I think, aren't you? Um, uh, correct. Yeah, yeah. So, so can we hope for UK dates following that, or at some stage, you know, before the summer? Well, actually, in the summer we're doing some festivals. We got um, one in Sweden and one in France. So we um, hopefully would come back and do some shows in in England around that time, somewhere, you know, in. Um, the places that we normally play. Let's talk, James, about the album uh, Big Money, because it came out this year on Frontiers and followed another excellent album, Cartesian Dreams. Now, when you when you made Big Money, did you approach the latest album any differently? Was there any different approach to the last one in terms of the songs or the the atmosphere? The atmosphere, yes. Um, there is a... Um, there was a rawness to Big Money that, although I love Cartesian Dreams, I think it's a, you know a very strong record. Um, it didn't. It wasn't as raw sounding. It wasn't as um, I would say um, spontaneous. In that, uh, a lot of overdubbing wasn't done. Um, a lot more at attention to not sounding pop.
polished, which is, you know, you can, you can polish anything up and, you know, give it a pristine sound, but we were just going for more of a raw sound, something that sounded like guys in a room playing the song. So that was a little bit different for House of Lords. Uh, I, I personally love that sound because uh, it reminds me of what I grew up with, which was in the 70s. Things were, I mean, you could hear the mistakes, you know. You could hear a Led Zeppelin record, and Robert Plant was double-tracking a vocal, and it's all over the place. But for some reason, it never gets tired. You never get tired of listening to how um, inspiring it was. So that's what I was, I guess the word I was looking for was inspiring. Yes. It sounds like you made more of a live-sounding album than the previous one. That was intentional. Yes. Is that a, a feature, do you think, of the House of Lords albums from the early days? Um, is, a, is there a tendency to overproduce the albums? Well, there's, you know, the more you have, the more you use. It's, it's like you, you can get really caught up in it, and some people, and there, there are, you know, bands that, that do it well and that, that actually... You know, they need it, you know. I mean, you listen to a Def Leppard record, and it's produced by Mutt Lang, and it's perfect in every sense of the word. You know, the guy is a phenomenal producer. But then I'll listen to that record, and then I'll put on a Zeppelin record recorded 20 years prior to that. And which one will I actually like better? It would be the um, the uh, record by Zeppelin. There's just something about what was going on back then and how they were getting it that... Um, that never tires. You don't ever get tired of listening to it. So I, I, I guess, you know, without being anal- analytical, I, what I was trying to do was get the best of both worlds, something a little bit more uh, sounding, sounding like you were there in the room watching it go down. And, I, you know, there are some people that hear will say, well, it's not produced like your, your last record. Well, yeah, it's, it's produced differently, not uh, that it couldn't be produced uh, slick, but I would rather, I, I wanted something that just sounded raw. MelodicRock.com got it completely. You know, as a matter of fact, when they reviewed the record, that's you know, one of the statements they made. It was a raw record, but in a good way. So you have to, you have to always, you know, realize that you cannot please 10 out of 10 people. If that were the case, you know, you'd be, I don't think any, anyone has. You can put 10 people in a room and five of them would, wouldn't like Back in Black, which was one of my favorite records. Get ready to rock radio. Now, James, do you find that there's an expectation with House of Lords albums? You've been making them since the late 80s. Um, in other words, a perception of how it should sound. I mean, you mentioned there that some fans don't like the rawness, but it, are there any constraints when you make a new album? I mean, evidently not from what you tell me about Big Money. You've, you've, you've slightly changed the vibe. Yeah, well, you know, the one thing, the... the um common thread i guess you would say would always be the vocals and that that never changes and that everything around it has i mean the 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 songs still have to be strong you know Uh, the one thing that i think house of lords has always prided itself on was the songwriting ability and not being afraid to use people like my partner mark baker to bring him into the into the uh writing process a lot of bands you know wouldn't do that. They would say, oh, no, no, man, we're going to write these songs. Well, if you, if you suck as a songwriter, it makes no sense. You know, so it, it really it makes a lot more sense to bring in people who have the same vision and that you can work off of. And I believe that Mark Baker and Jeff Kent are those people. 
Jimmy Bell gives me the foundation. He gives me great um, ideas from his uh, riffs. And once I have those riffs and I come up with a melodic idea of a melody, then I go to Mark, and then Mark and I work it out, and we, you know, we hash it out until we have something that we feel is valuable. And, and if it's not valuable, if I don't like it, then it's not going to get on the record. So uh, basically, I like everything that's on the record. I don't hate anything. <laughs> that's the best way, isn't it? Now, would you say that in some ways the band have always got to live up to um, what really was a classic album? I mean, you'll have your favourite, James, and fans have their favourites, but um, my first encounter with House of Lords was Sahara in 1990. And I think it brought the band to wider attention here in the UK. Um, you had a fair bit of promotion at that time. Um, would you say that having an album like that is, is is an asset, but sometimes also another constraint because people want you to play tracks off it? And I suppose if you if there's certain aspects of it you didn't like at the time, I mean, how would you view the album yourself? I, I loved, and I, I mean it in all honesty, from the first album all the way to the end, I loved the House of Lords sound. It's what I it's what I really believe in. So doing out songs from the first and second record is not a problem for me. It's not. It's a labor of love, if you want to put it, uh, you know, in a way that that's understandable. I love the material. I have no problem, you know, doing it. And people ask me that question. They've, they've asked me before, aren't you tired of singing Can't Find My Way Home? Or aren't you tired of this uh, Want to Be Loved? No, I'm not. You know, I, I, I'm fortunate to have songs that people still remember and still request, you know. So for me, it's a joy. It's making me want to go and investigate some of those other albums. But we'll talk about those, James. Um, just talking about Sahara, you, you use some um, well-known session players on that album. And one name that comes to mind is Doug Aldrich. Yes. How, how far is he? I mean, you know, people who like his style will probably be able to pick it out easily. But how many tracks did he actually play on? I think all of them. And Sahara, I believe... I'm sorry, there was one solo that he didn't do and I, I think the song was American Babylon I'm pretty sure that one he didn't play but um, Doug pretty much did that whole record and um, look, look he, he's one of the best guys I've ever played with and back then he was a monster I, mean, I can only imagine how many years later what he's like now but back then he was you know just smoking so, so his solos were on that album pretty much all the way through. Yeah, he yeah. he did the solo on "Can't Find My Way Home." That's all Doug. Um, remember my name. He there was there was one song, and it was American Babylon. You know, I have to go back and listen because I know Doug's style. Yeah. So I'd be able to tell you. Sahara was definitely Doug. Kiss of Fire was definitely Doug. So um, I'm pretty sure he did most of that record. Right. Was there any reason why, because um, I think at that time, am I right in saying you had a, um, a guy called, well, Michael Guy, uh, came in on guitar, but he, was there any reason why he didn't feature more extensively? Well, Michael, um, Michael was brought into the group pretty much as we were done uh, finishing the recording part of it. We, we really wanted to get Doug into the group. We were, we were really trying our best to have that happen. But Doug had some commitments. I guess it was um, something, a band he was with, and I can't remember the name of it. 
Lion, was it? I believe that was the band. And um, so he had this group, and he had a commitment to work with them, or a contract to work with them, but we did get Doug to go on tour with us. Uh, he was available, so we used him for the tour, and and all, it, it, it just didn't work out with Michael Guy. Michael Guy, it didn't turn out to be the right um, formula for us. Um, you know, you, you know it when it's right, and you also know it when it's not. So at that point, we really didn't want to make any mistakes, so that's why we, you know, pursued Doug. This is Radio for the Internet Age. Get ready to rock radio. Now, is there any reason, James, why the um, founder member, keyboard player, Greg, is it Gwif- Gwifria? Gifria. Gifria. Um, he never returned to the band after you, well, after the early 90s. You, you did a, an original lineup reunion at the Firefest event, I think that was 2007, but he wasn't part of that. No, um, Greg got more involved in a, a business aspect of. Uh, he was living in Las Vegas and uh, did something with some kind of patent on a slot machine, which uh, I guess turned out very well for him. And from that, he parlayed that into a part ownership into the Hard Rock Casino in Biloxi. So he's um, really a businessman at this point. Do you ever feel, I mean, talking about constraints of expectation and what have you i mean do you ever feel that's a constraint because would there be a possibility to have the completely original lineup if if he was if he was basically up for it you know yeah that would be a possibility but here's the problem we tried it on power in the myth and it failed miserably because um everybody's musical tastes have changed and everyone didn't want to go back to what we were doing 15, 18 years ago. They just didn't want to do it. Uh, but the record company wanted that. That's what the record company wanted to hear. Uh, I'm the only one that really believed in that sound, uh, that, I, that I, I believe that it's still viable. You know, you, just, you, you don't record the record the same way, but you go, go through it in the spirit of uh, writing it in the 80s. Uh, World Upside Down is a record that was done in 1990, I'm sorry, um, 2004, 2005. But it sounds modern, you know, it's, it, but it's got all the melodic flavors that you need. So you don't have to, you don't have to sacrifice melodicness uh, to, to uh, sound modern. And uh, the problem was the rest of the guys were really into cre- recreating the sound, recreating a sound uh, that, that hasn't been done yet by House of Lords. Yes. No, I, I can understand that, really. They didn't really want to move forward with the music. Right. That was a problem. Now, now tell us a bit about the... Um, going by, right back in time to the formation of the band in the late 80s. Um, I gather you were protégés of... Well, at least, I think, perhaps you were more directly um, in contact with Gene Simmons from KISS, and he may well have recommended you to the band, but... Um, what was happening then around the late 80s? How did, it, how did it all come together? Well, actually, Chuck Wright brought me into the picture. Um, he had, uh, I had sent him a tape uh, because they were looking for a singer for Quiet Riot, and I was uh, a little late getting to the party there. They had already chosen, uh, I think, Paul Shortino at that point. But Chuck held on to my tape, and when uh, they, they uh, were putting together House of Lords, 
that's when he brought me up and brought me over to meet Greg, um, meet the rest of the guys. I did a couple of tracks for them, sang them, and uh, they were totally, you know, totally happy with what I was doing. Yet they had auditioned many, many, many singers. So it still wasn't a lock for me until I met Gene again. Now, we had met uh, prior to that because I, re- I uh, did a song for one of his records that he was producing. But um, we really weren't, like, you know, speak, you know, calling each other on the phone or anything. It was a, a business thing. So uh, I had to go through the, the, the uh, audition channels like everyone else did, you know, and I had to wait and, until it was narrowed down to two guys. And the, the guy that... Uh, it was either between me or this other guy, and I've, I remember that he was a Ford model, and he looked like, you know, perfect in every way. Adonis with hair, blonde hair down to his back, and uh, again, a Ford model, perfect, you know, image of a rock frontman. So it was kind of uh, nerve-wracking, but luckily they went with the better singer. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> the better looker. He he probably would have lost his hair over the years, wouldn't he? You know. Oh, who knows? All I know is that uh, back then, you know, image was like incredibly important. I mean, the poisons of the world and the Motley Crues. You know, nothing against Vince Neil, but it's not like you know, on the top list of yeah. singers. You know. Yes. But uh, you know, he was the front man for Motley Crue, and and that was a. You know, that was a big group, and it was all about image. And I was a guy from Connecticut. I didn't really have an image yet, but I did have a voice. I just needed to, you know, I needed a vehicle, and House of Lords was the perfect vehicle. And at that time when you came into the band, was there already that Gene Simmons connection behind the scenes? Was it um, his label, I think, was it? Or Yes, yeah. Gene's label was what signed House of Lords, but... What happened was after uh, and it was distributed by RCA, but when ha- when RCA heard the record, they took it off of Gene's. They took it out of Gene's hands and took it upon themselves and just said, "Look, you don't have to do anything. We'll do the rest. Uh, we'll we'll promote it. We'll pay for it. We'll do everything." And Gene says, "As long as my name stays on there, Simmons Records, you can do whatever you like." So we had the we had the RCA engine behind us, and we had it behind us big time. I mean, they they hired Michael Bay to do our videos, and, and Michael Bay today is one of the biggest movie producers in the world. Uh, Transformers is all Michael Bay. Uh, Pearl Harbor is Michael Bay. The guy is all over the movie industry. Then he was doing our music videos. So that's another question, really. I mean, you were obviously getting great um, support, label support at that stage. And how long did that continue for, James? For two records. Right. Two albums, and then we decided that um, the the guy, the president of RCA, they took from Nashville and brought him into the rock um, division up in LA. And from that point, things got really weird. Uh, we had we had just released "Remember My Name," and it was climbing the charts. It was climbing quickly. Uh, MTV had it as the number one. I'm sorry, number two most requested video on MTV. Back then you had to request videos. They had like contests and stuff. So everything was going in our direction and he pulled the plug on that song and went with another song right away. Like he a song that he felt was a stronger song. And it, we lost the momentum on Remember My Name, which would have should have been a huge hit. It was it was a hit on MTV but it wasn't the hit it needed to be. So uh we really felt 
we got um, shafted, as you could, we might say, at that point. And we didn't want to renew our contract at that point, and that's when we signed up with um, Victory Records, which is a division of Polygram. And unfortunately, when that record came out is when the music industry changed to grunge, and it was all over. It was all downhill from there. It's amazing the number of people you speak to, well, you know, obviously we speak to, who, um, especially in the melodic rock genre, which was picking up speed in the late 80s, and it was really the heyday, wasn't it? And uh, as you say, it then all came to a halt because of grunge, and, um, you know, very sad for that, really. Uh, just finally then, James, um, talking about um, albums in the early 90s, have you got an overall favourite House of Lords album? Uh Yes, Demons Down. Right, because that's that that'll be the obscure album that possibly other listeners haven't heard that one because it didn't have any promotion as far as I remember in the UK. And it was it, it was a phenomenal record. If you've never listened to it, if you've never heard it, you should definitely check that one out. Right, and and would you like to select a track off that as representative of the album? Yes. The song I would like to uh, take off that one is is title track, Demons Down. Demons Down, great. Well, look, great talking to you. I'm sure we'll catch up again in the future, James. All right. You take care and um, all the very best for your recuperation. Thank you, David. And from Get Ready to Rock, good luck for the future. Take care. Get Ready to Rock Radio, music you want to hear.